Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman, was detained in Tehran by morality police for allegedly not covering her hair properly. Her death in custody on September 16th this year, after three days of confinement, has provoked an unprecedented wave of protests across Iran against the Islamic regime and the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khomeini. From continuous street protests across the country, clashes between police and protesters that have resulted in numerous deaths, and the interruption of state-run broadcasts, tensions have been building toward a boiling point. Which brings us to the question of how did we get here and what may come next. Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I am your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today, our analyst is Maddie Field. Hi, Maddie. Hi, Drew. Thank you for coming on. And focusing on the international aspect today is Joshua Axon. Hi, Josh. Hey, Drew. It's great to be on today. Thank you for coming on. All right, guys, I would like to start and just get a background of the situation, but most specifically the woman who we will be talking about a lot today. Who is Masa Amini? I'll turn to you first, Madeline. First of all, her name is not actually Masa. Her real name is Gina, but her passport contained the Persian name Masa, as in Iran, Kurdish language is banned from official documents. She was a 22-year-old, as you mentioned, born in Sakez, a western Iranian city, into a Kurdish family. She wasn't a political activist, despite what authorities have attempted to paint her as. She was a normal girl, active on Facebook. She posted selfies of her laughing and smiling in just days leading up to her death. So it would be safe to say she was part of the Kurdish minority within Iran as well? Yes, she was one of 8 to 10 million Kurds in Iran. Okay. So what were the events that led her to be arrested? So September 13th, she is on vacation with her family in Tehran, the capital of Iran. She's arrested by morality police for inappropriate attire, i.e. not wearing a hijab. She's taken to a police station to be quote-unquote educated. She falls into a coma, and she dies September 16th in a hospital. Her family visits her in the hospital, and police say she dies of heart disease, but she doesn't have a medical history, and as her family visits her, they notice unusual bruising around her legs. So that's when thoughts started to turn to something other than simply a heart attack. Yep. Uh, you mentioned the term morality police, and I mentioned that in the intro, Maddie. Do either of you want to go into what actually the morality police is when we talk about that? Uh, sure. The morality police were established in 1990, so well after the Iranian Revolution, after veil wearing became compulsory in Iran. The morality police enforce Islamic dress and modesty for men and women alike, although they tend to focus on women and they can hand down punishments such as beatings and lashings, and bystanders often knife or throw acid on victims. So this is not just an official state response. This is also sanctioned by many people within Iran. I see. So now that we have an understanding of the role of the morality police and uh, Amini's uh, taking into custody and her death, let's get into so the start of the beginnings of the protests. Yeah, sure. So since she was killed, which was currently which is currently under investigation. At least 185 people, including 19 children, have been killed in nationwide protests across Iran. The highest number of killings have occurred within Sistan province, and over 20 members of the security force have been reported as dead in response to the protests. So protests a weekend start getting extremely anti-governmental. 
The government, in response to videos that were widely circulating showing women cutting off their hair, burning their hijabs, burning police stations, shut down social media as they did in 2019. So what happened so far is that the states organized counter rallies. Um, They started spreading misinformation. But these protests have gotten extremely large, particularly at universities within Iran in large cities such as Tehran, Isfahan, Rashid, and Shiraz. And again, as I'm sure Josh will address later, there have been large protests in major cities across the world like London, Rome, Madrid, New York. I was also going to ask, what actions has the regime taken? You mentioned counter-responses as well, Madeline. So the regime has taken extensive measures in blocking internet access. Currently, women are cutting their hair and burning hijabs on social media, which is particularly noteworthy because it speaks to the influence of how Iran is trying to contain information from the world as it fears outside influence from the days preceding her arrest. Currently, the Iranian president's official stance on her death is that it's under investigation, and they've cited that police violence occurs frequently in the U.S. and the U.K. However, like while, as Josh said, President Raisi condemned the chaos sparked by protests, they've, like, there's been a turn in misinformation. He and the Ayatollah Khamenei have accused the U.S. and Israel of perpetrating these protests in an attempt to, quote-unquote, take down an Iran that is strong and independent, They've said that rioting was planned rather than a completely legitimate response to the political and religious standards that have been imposed upon women in Iranian society. While um, the president has pledged an official forensics and judiciary report, he continued to double down on rhetoric saying that riots were unacceptable and that things such as burning the Quran, removing jobs are not justifiable or normal under Islamic standards. By and large, the regime has taken a very much scapegoat response to the protests since they began blaming foreign adversaries, Kurdish people in Iraq, um, and so forth. Yeah, and again, they've been late to respond. Um, The Ayatollah Ali Khamenei didn't speak until three weeks after the incident, and the Iranian foreign minister Hussein Amir Abdullahian told diplomats at a UN meeting that protests would not threaten the stability of the regime, that things would be totally fine, but clearly things are getting out of control, which is why it seems that they shut off that internet access. What's really unique about the threat that these protests have to the regime is that other protests in the past against the current Iranian regime have been for economic or political reasons. However, this one seems to be unique in that it's transcending all aspects of Iranian society and is led by women in particular. It's no longer about economic rights. It's about human rights, and it poses a unique threat in that way. I think you both have elucidated some good points. But you also mentioned the scapegoating that the Iranian regime has done to absolve itself of blame, so to speak, and accusing foreign adversaries. So I wanted to turn to you, Josh, as the international analyst, and look at the foreign response to the regime's crackdown on the protesters. Yeah, so we've seen responses by a lot of Western nations in particular. The United States, Canada have both placed sanctions on Iranian officials, and the EU is considering doing the same. However, the UN has, by and large, condemned all the responses and crackdowns of the protests, particularly that firearms should never be used to disperse an assembly, or the UN Secretary General has called on security forces to stop using, quote, unnecessary or disproportionate force, end quote, and that they need a prompt, impartial, and effective investigation into her death. You mentioned the use of live ammunition. Has this become more widespread within the regime's response to the protest, Josh? 
we have a lack of information about a lot of the protests going on, or the response to the protests going on. Uh, official Iranian policies that no live ammunitions were used. However, with the death toll exceeding the last number was 195, and security forces also dying, it would seem illogical to assume that live ammunition was not being used. Mm-hmm. You dug a little bit into like responses from the United States and the Canada. Do you have anything else to talk about, Josh, of the response by the United States and Western nations in particular, as they are the seem to be the main scapegoats for the Iranian regime? Absolutely. What's really interesting about the United States response is that protesters and a lot of citizens in the Western world have called on President Biden to do a lot more. However, it's this tricky balancing situation because we have Biden trying to resurrect the Iranian nuclear deal that was orchestrated by Democratic President Obama back in 2015 and then was abandoned by Republican President Trump after that. So Biden is trying to walk this unique line between responding to the protests, but at the same time trying to resurrect this deal so that way Iranian doesn't become a nuclear nation. Do you also think, this is a question addressed to you both, of that the United States or those nations seeking to apply sanctions on Iran are faced with a tough position as in the sanctions that they apply will hit the people as well that they're protesting against the nation as well. Yeah, Drew, of course. So what we've seen today is that Iran is virtually bankrupt because of U.S. sanctions. So I think that further sanctions will only serve to cripple their economy more. And with 80% of Iranians already below the poverty line, I'm not sure that that is a sufficient step that the U.S. should take, especially considering the high death toll that we've already seen so far. It's obvious the Iranian regime is resistant to outside pressure, so I just don't think that's the route to go. And if we want to talk about the outside world, the the bipolar counterpart to the United States is increasingly China, particularly in economics. And so since 2020, China has stepped in to help counteract U.S. oil sanctions. Currently, China has bought over $30 billion from Iran since 2020 illicitly. And for perspective, China previously bought about 400,000 barrels of oil a day. Currently, that's over a million barrels of oil. And it's interesting because the U.S. sanctions theoretically would freeze out any entity that buys oil from Iran. However, because of the economic power of China, we've been resistant to do that. One thing that I wanted to ask you both, both as uh, covering the regime's response to the protest and also international response, is the Iranian regime's response to the crackdown and some by like the Kurdish population protesting, as in they're launching missiles into Kurdish-owned territories in Iraq. Do you both have anything to say about that? Yeah, this is another attempt by the regime to scapegoat the attacks as foreign-based and not domestic to help promote Iranian unity. Currently, the attacks since September 28th, over 13 Kurds have been killed in Iraqi Kurdistan, and another 58 were wounded, which includes civilians. This was justified by the Iranian foreign minister saying that they were a threat to Iran's national security, as they're terrorists. Or the Iranian regime considers them terrorists. That's an important clarification. Yes. They also justified it as they said that Masa's cousin was a member of a left anti-Tehran Kurdish political group. So they said that really, in reality, the Kurds were trying to stoke ethnic tension and that somehow this was all connected back to her cousin, which her family has vehemently denied. And it's clear it's patently false. And you mentioned earlier, Maddie, that Masa herself has no like history of political Zero. protesting. No, she was a normal woman. Yeah. Do you have anything to add on to that, Josh? 
I think if we're looking at the Iranians launching attacks into foreign territory, something that's really important to address is that the Houthis in Yemen, which are on Saudi Arabia's southern border, recently announced that they're going to end their truce with the Saudi-led coalition. So for reference, the Houthis in Yemen are Iran-based. And so in the Middle East, there's this mini Cold War between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And so with the canceling of this treaty, it lets Iran launch attacks into Saudi Arabian territory under the guise of their proxy, the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, and you mentioned the mini Cold War between Iran and Saudi Arabia in the region, Josh. For our viewers, it also it's important to note the religious aspect potentially that exists there as Saudi Arabia is the major Sunni power of the region in the Middle East and Iran is the major Shi'i power. I also want to turn back to, we've mentioned this before, to you, Maddie, and talk about the role of women in the hijab in Iranian society, as this has been a center of debate. As you mentioned during the protest, women have taken off their headscarves and burned them or tore them off their heads in protest against the morality police and the regime's actions. Yes, Drew. So the hijab has been a focus of political protest for decades now. In 1936, the hijab was banned in public. As we've mentioned before, Iranian society pre-Iranian revolution was incredibly liberal. And interestingly enough, this kind of had a negative effect on society. It confined many very religious women to their homes whose husbands or their own personal convictions would not allow them to leave without a hijab. This policy uh, was vastly, vastly unpopular among the populace but it left it a symbol of battles over national identity for the coming decades. After the revolution, it was mandated despite protests by many women who did not want to have to wear a hijab. It became a real symbol of the government's control over this new Iranian society. For religious families, this was very helpful as it made them willing to let their daughters go out and get an education. Iranian women are highly educated and make up the majority of university graduates. But for liberal women, obviously, this has been a real flashpoint of cultural discussion. So Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who's the current Ayatollah, he took power in 1989 by consolidating the support of many of these conservative groups who were focused on the issue of the hijab. But it's clear as we see these protests that this support is shattering in the face of youth and urbanization. And even his most staunch supporters are questioning his decisions. You mentioned it, Maddie. It seems like the hijab in Iranian society has swung between two extremes or like the government's policy, like pre-1979 under the Shah, he forbidden failing and things. And so it was a protesting against the government. It was a symbol of the revolution. But now it's almost a symbol of oppression towards many women within Iran as well. Yeah, I think it's a reflection of the polarity of pre Iranian revolution and post-Iranian revolution Iranian society. Mm -hmm. Um, It shows how extreme these two regimes have become. Do you want to go any more into, you mentioned the struggle of many of women in society in Iran who are protesting against that. Do you have anything else to say on that? Uh, Yeah, of course. It's clear in Iran women are second-class citizens, just not a center of debate. They just are. Girls as young as 13 can be married. Girls as young as 10 can be married with parental approval. Domestic violence is rampant in Iran, and current provisions, laws are insufficient. Women are restricted or need male permission in marriage, divorce, employment, and culture. They are given the right to vote, and again, as I mentioned earlier, they have high education rates, but only 15% of women are actually employed. 
so they're restricted from participation in economic society by their husbands. Only 6% of elected representatives are women, according to the UN. So there's a real sense of female solidarity in Iran, I've read. There's openness. Again, Iranian society is changing. There are many young, educated people that reject these conservative laws, but still women in Iran occupy a unique situation in the region. I also, taking a look back at the woman who, whose death started the Salmas Amini, she's of course a woman, but also she is a Kurdish woman. And mm-hmm. so in many people's eyes, she's just a symbol of things that the regime has uh, restricted access or discriminated against within their policies. Yes, absolutely. The Kurds are an ethnic minority in Iran and a persecuted one at that. They make up roughly 10% of Iranian population, but they have been completely oppressed by the nation state. Their language and their culture is restricted. Almost half of all political prisoners in Iran, of which there are many, are Kurds. And the regimes carried out assassinations on prominent Kurdish leaders and activists. And as far as Europe, they're very, very poor, and they have to participate in underground economic activity. And it seems like, from what I've read, more than a thousand Kurds have been arrested in these protests so far. So really, the rallying cry of of these protests so far has been women, life, freedom, which is a popular Kurdish slogan utilized in protests before. And I think that perfectly sums up exactly what we're looking at here. We're looking at ethnic tensions, we're looking at religious tensions, and we're looking at gender tensions. So hopefully these protests really prove and and lead to a more egalitarian society in Iran. I think it's unique that the president-elect of the National Council of of Resistance of Iran has said, quote, no negotiations with this regime, no concessions, and no sanctions relief until ruthless rulers are held accountable, end quote. Going off of that point, Josh, and the excellent points you've made as well, Maddie, looking at the comparison of both the current political climate, I also want to compare that to the Iranian history of protests and revolutions. As you mentioned, Maddie, previous protests have used that the slogans that are now being chanted as well. Mm-hmm. So I think it's useful to look at the socioeconomic and political situation that Iran is in now. There's a lot of dissatisfaction in Iranian society. We've seen, like, five major protest movements in the last decade and a half because the the economy, the ethnic, uh, and the political economy really are in shambles. Iran is refusing to kind of change with the times and their utilization of social media blackouts and things like this in 2019 and now have shocked the economy and the people. There's just no freedom of information or power in civil society and the regime is not budging on this. Because of COVID, we're seeing a lot of shortages of water and electricity in the past year, and parts of Iran are becoming uninhabitable. The government is going bankrupt due to U.S. sanctions, and GDP growth is negative. Like, 80% of people live below the poverty line. There's brain drain. There's, there's just so much going on, and people are upset. There have been calls, even among the conservative majority, to shift to a presidential, from a presidential system to a parliamentary one. But it's unlikely, given that Raisi was definitely instilled by the Ayatollah. Uh, he's thought to be the runner-up now. Once Kamani dies, he will succeed him, probably. So I just don't know how much is going to change in the immediate future. 
I think what's really critical is if we want to look back at the last successful revolution, the 1979 one against the Shah, was the Shah didn't have control of the oil industry, which funds the government, and the merchants helped overthrow the Shah. They don't hold economic power within Iran anymore, and so this this regime is much more stable than the Shah, and so they've been able to have a tighter control over Iran. The Shah, right before he got overthrown, had to admit that he was wrong in an attempt to retain power. And that is what political science said got him overthrown, was that was the final straw that broke the camel's back, was admitting that he was slightly wrong. This regime hasn't done that. They've stuck to what they've said, and they keep using others as scapegoats. Yep. Since Kamani has been in power, which, um, again, was 1989, I believe, we've seen major protests in 1999, 2005, 2008, 2017, and 2019 that have been brutally suppressed. And when I say brutally, I mean brutally. We've seen thousands of people killed, hundreds of thousands of people arrested, social media blackouts, as we mentioned earlier, just a lot of violent approaches to countering these protests. There even were protests in 2019 where 1,500 people were killed. So this is not a new phenomena, I think, in Iran especially. I think what's really interesting about these protests, I know we touched a bit on about how it's human rights, but they're explicitly not for reform. The past protests in a lot of ways have been for reform. These protests are for revolution. They want the regime gone. They don't want the regime to change. So I, that was kind of leading into my next question, Josh, of like both Maddie and you have elucidated the differences in these protests from previous ones, whether it be those ones for more economic or political protests, whether protesting uh, gas prices, price hikes, or economic protests and the policies of the regime towards like human dignity and human rights and the actual status of society. What is the attitude of refl- revolutionary sentiment in these protests, where do you estimate that level is at? I think that they're higher than they've been at any point since the current regime got into power. However, I don't think it's widespread enough to actually be able to overthrow the government in a significant way. I think the Iranian government is going to get continually more oppressive as these go on. And go back to their playbook, as you and Maddie have elucidated, the rolling blockouts of the internet, the tightening of restrictions. As you mentioned, Josh, they're able to repress and tighten their control on society due to their control of the economic powerhouse of the region, the oil industry as well. Yeah, yeah, they're going to continue clamping down. And much like we see in particularly China is this internet clampdown of, and they're going to have complete control over information and use that to attempt to shift culture. You have something to say, Maddie? Yeah, I actually have a very different point of view. I think that This discontent, as you mentioned, Josh, it's not solely economic, although the economic situation is difficult right now, and it's not just political. You know, people are mad. Um, But this is about human dignity and freedom, gender equality. Women are, again, 50% of Iranian society, and they have been oppressed uh, for decades. And we see a very, very educated young populace that is tired, sick and tired of these regime responses, sick and tired of being the most repressive government in the region. Before Twitter was shut down in Iran, there were 80 million tweets associated with the hashtag, hashtag Masa Amini. And that was a Twitter record, actually. Um, So I think that young people, 
as we've seen in the Arab Spring and things like this, they have the capacity to make real changes if they stay consistent. The international response has also been significant. I mean, I had not heard of the 2019 protests before this, but everyone has heard of what's going on in Iran currently. And I think another important thing to note is that there aren't any clerics tied to this movement. In the past, clerics, who are the religious figures within Iran, have been tied to protests and have granted them legitimacy. But I think in this situation, people don't want their legitimacy. They're seen as an extension of the regime, of the religious autocracy and political repression. And I think people are sick and tired of it. I'm very interested to see what Iran is going to do next. Yeah, I think as far as the international scene, what's really important is we've already seen attacks into Iraqi Kurdistan. And what could potentially happen next is that they're already looking at possibility of a small-scale invasion into the area. So it's going to be interesting to see how Iran uses the scapegoat idea and potentially launches attacks, maybe not a full-scale war, but at least attacks onto the people around them and the countries around them to divert attention away from the domestic scene into the international. Yep. I was going to ask, like, what are the potential future responses, but I think you covered that, Josh. And just my last question before we wrap it up, guys, is how long do you estimate that these protests could potentially last? Yeah, so they've been going on um, since September 17th, I believe, the day after Masa's funeral in her hometown. So we've seen, we, it's been a roughly three and a half weeks. So I would say that that's been a fairly long time. I was doing some internet searches today and there was still information coming out. The Ayatollah spoke out again today saying that the regime was, or that these protests were an extension of Israeli U.S. influences in the region. So I think that they have the capacity to go on for longer, whether, again, as we've discussed, that can be translated into a sustained revolution is yet to be seen, but I can only help. Yeah, I think we have, at the very least, a couple more weeks, if not months, of these protests. It's spiraled something larger out of the, sh- the initial killing. It's become, again, revolution. Revolutionary reform is what they're, they're asking for. And so that's not going to be stamped out easily. And it'll be interesting to see what the effect of the internet cut will do, because that's how a lot of these protests were originally organized. Well, this has been a great discussion on a very important topic. Maddie, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, Drew. Thanks for having me. Yep, thanks, Drew. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Michaela Salib. Hey, Michaela. Hey, Drew. Thank you for coming on. So what headlines do you have for us this week? Crowded coffins and empty explanations for mourners of Thai massacre. Palestinians hunt for homosexuals and Russian versus Ukraine. One man's bridge collapse is another man's game. Some important headlines to cover. Let's start with the unfortunate events in Thailand. After 34-year-old ex-cop Pamya Kamrap killed 36 people, 24 of which were children, in a daycare in Utai, Saiwan, Thailand, with an unknown motive, sorrow and anger filled the poor town. The Thai monarchs have visited victim families and will pay for the funerals in an attempt to raise spirits. Following Buddhist practice, the mourning ceremonies will take place for three days, ending with the cremation of the victims. We can only wish the victims' families the best in these tragic times. And you mentioned a hunt in Palestine? After 25-year-old gay Palestinian Abu Murkaya fled to Israel to seek asylum, his decapitated body was found back in the conservative town of Hebron, in West Bank, where he had fled. Footage uploaded online of the victim's body 
recorded by Palestinian teens, circulated and shocked the Palestinian community. Due to the prohibition of homosexuality in Palestine, the press released censored versions of the story, omitting he was gay, although his sexuality and attempted escape were confirmed by LGBTQ shelters who assisted Merkeya. A lamentable event in the region. And you mentioned updates from Ukraine? A truck bomb exploded on the bridge connecting the Crimean Peninsula to Russia, causing it to collapse on October 8th. With the bridge standing as an infamous symbol of Russian power in Ukraine, Ukraine is celebrating the victory through mockery and excitement on social media, while Russia has responded with missile attacks on city centers. Ukraine's effort through the bridge explosion was just one part of their greater plan to prevent Russia from using Crimea as a firing table for war efforts in Ukrainian territory. Thank you very much for coming on, Michaela, and keeping us informed. Thanks for having me. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew. Executive producer Jasmine Delion, associate producers Eric Bunce and Hamza Khan, technical producer Andrew Rakulia and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Scene Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.